Welcome to Climate Quandaries, and thanks for stopping by. The intention of the podcast is to create a space for balanced and thoughtful explorations of how climate science looks and feels from the inside, at this moment where climate factors are so important on so many levels. Although the guests are highly accomplished in their research, here we widen the aperture and discuss big picture lines of thinking. All of the discussions represent personal, not institutional, views, and in fact, that close examination is hoped to be a large part of the appeal. Here's episode four, my conversation with Peter Gibson, climate scientist at New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research. So we're now recording for the fourth episode of Climate Quandaries. The guest today is Peter Gibson from NIWA. He's a research scientist there. And I invited Peter because he is a colleague of mine from JPL. And so I'm aware of his work. And I really think he brings a lot of value in the climate community, both with his trans-Pacific expertise, but more uh, deeply because he, he leans into new statistical and model-based tools with an eye toward the big picture of what the the essential climate questions are that remain to be answered and can best be answered uh, using those tools. And not only is he machine-facing in that sense or numbers-facing, but he also is quite experienced and I think adept at the human-facing side of our science that is working with stakeholders, understanding what they really need and finding ways to produce new science that addresses those concerns and others that are that might be uh, related to those. So yeah, thanks so much for being here, Peter. Thanks so much, Colin. Yeah, th- and thanks for the introduction. I think I should transcribe that and write it down and put it on my CV. <laughs> I don't think I, I've, I've ever heard such a <laughs> nice introduction. So thanks for that. Yeah, no worries. No worries. So I sent you a few questions before we started to... Um, give you something to think about in the weeks leading up to our conversation here. So I thought we'd start with one of those and see where the conversation takes us. The one that I am going to start with, because I know you've thought about it pretty deeply yourself, independent of my prompt here, is about the, let's say, the moral value of the near future versus the far future. The question of essentially whether we've perhaps become too fixated on this end of century projection type science possibly to the exclusion of either the upcoming decades uh, of, say, the mid-21st century or of the centuries beyond. And I guess maybe that's particularly the area that, you're, that you've been thinking about, like 2200 or even beyond that, really kind of trying to interrogate the worst case scenarios at that kind of timescale, what we maybe can or can't do and whether we should or shouldn't be focusing on that more. So, Yeah, I think it's, it's a really important and interesting question. So I did my PhD in Australia, um, looking at future projections of, of heat wave trends and understanding biases and heat waves and, and climate models and these sorts of things. So that was very much focused on the sort of standard end of century uh, future projections. And then when I moved to JPL, did my postdoc at JPL and, and at Scripps, I had a shift of focus somewhat to the seasonal to decadal timescales. And then now back in New Zealand, where I'm a research scientist at NIWA, looking at more long-term climate change projections again. So I've dipped my toes in the different parts of the problem. 
I think in an interesting thing that's come up recently in my work is talking to stakeholders. Part of my work here is is running climate models for regional climate projections. So we downscale global climate models. Obviously, global climate models for an island nation like New Zealand are not particularly useful because we have complex terrain, lots of mountains, lots of smaller scale processes that affect temperature and rainfall and particularly extremes. Yeah, so talking to stakeholders about these projections we're providing, I think there's a lot of differences. It sort of depends a lot on who you talk to. It's something I've sort of come to realize. There's no, I think in our mind, we think of stakeholders want this. But yeah, from different communities and stakeholders I talk to is a, a range of things to think about. For example, they want to know 2030 to 2050 because that's around timeframes for you know, on the ground climate change adaptation. So I think that's important. But then other stakeholders I've talked to have, have come to me and say 2100 isn't, we, we need to think beyond that because they, they have mandates and local government plans here to provide projections 100 years from now into the future, which obviously now is sort of 21, 20 plus, you know. So making the, the argument that the IPC sees well, hasn't had a had a long enough focus. So, so yeah, I think there's a range of different needs for different stakeholders. I think another part of it that's useful is to think about the different sources of uncertainty at the different timescales. Obviously, if, if you're doing climate change predictions like 2020 to 2050, internal variability uncertainty is, is a huge part of it, right? That you're trying to especially for something like precipitation, where the signal is relatively small relative to the, the noise of the system over that 30-year period. Whereas end of century, the signal for, for precipitation especially becomes much stronger relative to the noise. So I think what we can provide is partly limited by our technical, I guess it's not really even technical, it's just the intrinsic limits of predictability in the climate system especially for precipitation. But yeah, it, it also depends on the variable, right, that you're interested in. For example, in your, your work, I know with heat stress, you know, the signals already clearly emerged from the noise, right, the, these strong trends and changes in heat stress. So in the short term, for things like heat stress and heat waves, communicating that information, highlighting that I think climate change is already here and now and, you know, these devastating heat events in the tropics and in other parts of the world like India and Pakistan, when, when they happen, these, you know, these definitely have a strong climate change signal is important. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the aspect of the question that I'm trying to dig into a little bit is if, you, if we take heat stress as an example, I know we're both interested in aspects of that. Say a 50-year lead, it's 100% dependent on the scenario and very little on internal variability or model differences or anything like that. So then it becomes a question, I guess, of if we're caring about things beyond 2100, because it's a government requirement, or because we feel like we have a moral duty to, to examine things, it's only barely 75 years from now, which is kind of hard to believe in a way. But I guess it's sort of the question about low probability, worst case type scenarios. And so much of the tropics hovers more or less year-round, just below this critical thermal tolerance level for people, as well as a lot of mammals. And even if there's a small chance of catastrophe at, say, 2200, what should we be doing and how should we be doing it to make sure that we don't run into that barrier? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, completely agree. 
when I think of all the different aspects of climate change, the parts that concern me the most, I think heat stress is such an obvious one because places that are borderline, you know, too hot is a clear signal for climate change. And, and yeah, approaching these thresholds is really concerning, I think. And I mean, the other aspect of it is, you know, in, in the mid-latitudes, part of the way to adapt to these changes in extreme events can be through better forecasting and better better technology and being able to predict these things in advance. Cyclones, tropical cyclones, ex-tropical cyclones. But yeah, I mean, in the tropics, where you, if you're approaching these habitability limits in the second half of the 21st century, it doesn't, I mean, that's not going to help you, right? You, if, if you cross these thresholds, obviously there are other things you can do, hopefully to adapt through technological developments. But th- I think that's that's the big one for me as well, that it's just super difficult. And that's where mitigation is going to become so important. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting one as well for a place like New Zealand, thinking about how we contribute. So New Zealand has quite large per capita CO2 emissions, but I think globally we're responsible for something like 0.1%, 0.17% of total global CO2 equivalent emissions, but per capita quite large emissions, I think top five OECD emissions. And so realizing that the problem is is a global problem and it, you know, it affects the people without resources to adapt and, and deal with climate change are going to be the ones most impacted by it, for example, in the tropics. So I, I think framing it that way is is useful for getting people on board, framing it that it is a this is a moral issue. It's not just something that we're gonna have to worry about locally. Yeah, is a is a huge part of the problem and I think the science is so clear there that we need to get on with it, yeah, in terms of cutting emissions, yeah. Yeah, you've brought up a few issues that I want to come back to. Maybe I'll address them in reverse chronological order as you said them. So first, and I'll let you respond here in between, but I wanted to bring back, first, you said about New Zealand having such high per capita emissions. And of course, I sit in the US, which has very high per capita emissions and total emissions being a much larger country. And I wonder if that gives us a certain extra need to compensate, you know, like to the extent that we we ourselves can't change the, the behavior of our countries appreciably for the most part, but we can control, I, I think, sort of where we focus our efforts and yeah, just more of a duty perhaps coming from a high per capita income place to really think about the places that are suffering and have low per capita emissions. Exactly. Another interesting aspect to it, I think, that I've seen is in terms of how much science is done as well, just more on the the climate science side, because I think this can help increase resilience to climate change by understanding the problem more. There's just a huge disparity as well, right? And I noticed this even between working in California at big research institutions versus working in New Zealand, which New Zealand is still a wealthy country relatively, but yeah, huge, huge disparities even there in terms of funding for basic science, funding for maintaining instrumentation as well, like, you know, long-term records of observations and things. You know, there's so many gaps. In, it's significantly in, worse in New Zealand, do you think? The funding for climate science is much reduced compared to, so the total number of climate scientists in New Zealand, I could count on two hands, you know. So we, we have a relatively small economy, so perhaps the spending per GDP is proportional, but in terms of the total science output is obviously much smaller. 
So, so that's New Zealand. But the real point, I guess, is that, you know, in other parts of the world, parts of South America, parts of Africa, where there's huge gaps in our observational record. And this is something you see with, for example, these rapid world weather attribution studies, you know, where there's an extreme event in part of the world, and then you try and go in and understand the role of climate change in these these events. Obviously, that's also the here and now, so the current as before, you know, you're saying end of century versus current. I think these studies very much fit in the current climate, which I think is really useful as well, just for highlighting that, you know, climate change is already here and now and, and, and having massive effects in the developing world. But then your your ability to do that science and come up with those answers is is directly limited by your observations in those regions and also your modeling capacities in those regions. Like there's often not regional models set up that have been run, you know, like you have ready to go in, in the US, Cordex and Australia and New Zealand. So this is a fascinating yeah. point. Like maybe it's not 2050s versus 2100 versus 2200 and how should we be apportioning our efforts but maybe the real answer is the 2020s in these places where we don't even have a good baseline yeah i I think so and i I think the ipcc has done quite a good job at recently of making sure there's diversity in the authorship of of different chapters and make like there's a regional chapter that that highlights that but some people are still complaining about it but by my account they're doing an okay job of it Still I mean, I think go, obviously. for sure, and at least it's in the right direction. The IPCC is still just a synthesis, right, of the literature. And if you don't have, you know, if, if there's huge gaps in the literature and of our understanding of the basic science, the observations, the models. The IPCC can't solve that. Sometimes yeah. these regional chapters are, are fairly sparse, including for New Zealand. And I, I just, again, I think New Zealand's on the spectrum between these countries but yeah so so i think that's a huge part of the challenge as well and i mean how to address that i think yeah like thinking about global funding for science you know as opposed to so so far you know your funding is you you win a grant to do if, if you work on regional climate stuff like we both do you know your your focus will be on your region more than other regions and if you do a global study, it will have limitations because you probably don't have high resolution in, in other parts of the globe that are needed. So, yeah, targeting investment in, in climate research in regions that need it the most is really important. I, I think it's not, <laughs> it might not be recognized, it probably is to us climate scientists, but to most people, just how big that disparity is. Like, I think even moving back to New Zealand, I've been asked to review maybe 20 papers on drought in California or something like this, or atmospheric rivers on the West Coast or yeah, heat waves in, in Australia. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the efforts are really concentrated, I think. As, as an off-tangent, that was also part of my motivation to move back to New Zealand. I felt that I could have more direct impact through my work here, where, <laughs> where <laughs> there is a much smaller pond you know, to, to do research in and you can see more of an effect. I feel if I... <laughs> there's not much lost for me not not working in the, the gap that I leave from being a researcher in the US is is quickly plugged by other great researchers um but yeah I, I think and yeah I've thought about this in my career as a future trajectory as well thinking about where I could possibly you know build ties with other collaborate better with other parts and and even I think there are ways to share resources even if it's not formalized 
a big one for us in the South Pacific is obviously island nations that are susceptible to sea level rise, but obviously um, heat stress through your work, they're not far off these these thresholds and obviously suffer you know, from tropical cyclones on a regular basis. So partnering with them a little more is something I hope to do in the future. Again, I think it comes back to resources a lot, but there, there are avenues, I think, that are opening up and, and better recognition of this. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that back up because that was one of the things I was going to say again that from the first few minutes, I think that some of the worst impacts of climate change and some of the most inequitable impacts are on these small islands, of which the Pacific has a lot. And, and also that sea level rise is the other prominent one in the tropical Pacific as well, you know, in addition to heat stress. And both of those are characterized by low probability, worst case kind of worries and the need for additional model development, validation, observational, uh, collection of observations and so on that kind of poses a real counterpoint to the usage of global models. And there's downscaling techniques and so on. But I think fundamentally, it's hard to disagree with the the statement that the hazards facing these small island tropical places, for example, are not well characterized Yeah, in, in the current climate and especially going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you could... <laughs> In your mind, like if there was a scatter plot between investment in science and like on the x-axis and on the y-axis would be like, you know, potential damage from extreme events, it would be a huge negative correlation, right? And that's... That's not how it should be. Science is only part of the equation, right? I mean, science can only get you so far, but that's just more what I'm familiar with, I guess. But also, obviously, investment and adaptation and, and, and building resilience there is important. But the science is one of the first steps there. And... Yeah, exactly. And I think the science can be, an, you know, a mechanism for until you diagnose the problem and understand, you know, the potential future risk, then that can lead to more investment and funding and from either governments internationally and other agencies and targeting support through things like the Red Cross and things like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A lot of stakeholders want to know a ballpark estimate of the frequency of something, the cost of something, and then only then will they start to seriously say, okay, here's a plan for addressing this problem. Yeah. Until then, it's a bit, there's plausible deniability <laughs> about the fact that something might recur. And especially in places that are resource limited, it's, I think, easy to say, well, you know, we need to focus on whatever else, economic or whatever right now, and we'll just leave the environmental stuff to hopefully take care of itself, which it never seems to do. But without real knowledge, what else are we going to do about it? Yeah, 100%. And I think another aspect of it is that that's always on my mind is the sort of unknown unknowns that, you know, a lot of our information is still based on global climate models, which we know struggle with extreme events at local local scales, you know, where on the ground effects are felt. And, and yeah, so that tail risk, right, is, is, is really important to diagnose and, and, and parts of the world where the observations and the models are not, are not there. Yeah. Yeah. And we were both at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is, of course, a leader in the remote sensing of many different Earth system variables, and most of the products are global in scope. And I was thinking, as you were talking a few minutes ago, like, why is it that, in my perception, and this could be wrong, but my perception is that with the even with the advent of you know, a whole blossoming universe of these things in the last 10 or 20 years, 
it hasn't meaningfully, again, as I can tell, shifted the needle like away from US, Europe focused work. And maybe that is because of where people are based and where, you know, funding is coming from and places that import talent and importing people who come into institutions and, you know, the institution has a project and it's focused on a particular place. And then you get a body of work going on a problem like drought in California, and then more people study it. And everyone, scientists are human, we all take the path of least resistance. <laughs> Even though we have, I'm sure you could get good data on soil moisture deficit in Angola or something, you know, who really yeah. does that? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, yeah, for sure. So I think there was some some statistic I heard when we were at JPL that I forget what percentage of, of satellite data is ever looked at, but you know, mm. th- th- there's a lot. Finishingly small. Yeah, because because you do need, you know, it does take time to 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 do these studies and to, but also to calibrate your data right locally. Like, you know, you need observations in place. Right. Even though you have data for a region, you can't at the same time just go and say, "Here's my analysis of it. Here's the final result," without some degree of on the ground validation or talking with people in that place, and that sort of involves more layers and complexities that I think a lot of people without in the current system of support are not really able to do. Yeah, but but I do think um, you know on the remote sensing side. I think that is really promising to bridge some of these divides. You know, um, there are lots of challenges, obviously, with remote sensing of like precipitation, for example, and things like this. But combining that with observations and I think more clever ways to fuse data products, so the fusing of reanalysis as reanalysis gets better as well with high resolution models and more data being assimilated, and then fusing those products with yeah the satellites and then validating it against gauges locally. I think is a huge step forward and you know some of the products now i think are, are definitely big advancements and moving in the right direction so i think that will be really exciting and, and it hopefully will you know as the the cost of of mission of satellite missions decreases i expect you know as as the way seems to be going you know with the ramping up of, of many more launches every year and just yeah generally the cost going down hopefully we can get better coverage and better products that will directly address this. But another also challenge, of course, is that, you know, we typically need long-term records, right? So <laughs> you launch your your mission today and wait, you know, so, but there are clever ways to stitch these products together and also, you know, produce a sort of satellite-based reanalysis where you build relationships, you know, between the, the current product and and past products and stitch them together. So JPL obviously does that and other NASA products. So I, I think that is yeah going to be really exciting to see those tools. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that kind of can segue into one of the other questions that I sent you and some of the questions I've been talking about with a few guests so far, but this one I actually haven't touched on yet. So I'll be really curious to hear some of your thoughts about it, which is if we think about the international landscape of science, we have all this data and the quality of our scientific understanding is increasing year by year. And yet there's also sort of anti-scientific undercurrents, both, I think, in the political leadership, as well as among the public in general. Public understanding of science is certainly not where it should be. And then there's, you know, that's not even to mention the disparities in science education and 
access, you know, to, to good scientific data for research, say, in different countries. So basically, the question is, do you think we need to rethink how we make science work for people globally, let's say, or within countries? And and sort of, is that something we should be trying to go for, you know, IPCC or other UN or other forums or kind of anything within that yeah, uh, yeah, broad yeah. Yeah, sphere yeah. of possibilities? For sure. I think, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with what you're saying that, you know, you you might have predicted 10 years ago with the internet and just the, the amount of information at our fingertips, right, on your smartphone is is pretty amazing, right? Wikipedia, these are all great resources where... People would have killed for that, you know, the ability to look up some random thing, you know, in a in 10 seconds. Yeah, even, and even, I mean, on the science side, like Google Scholar, it's, it's amazing, right, compared to researchers 30 years ago that, you know, you'd go into a, <laughs> a library, a library. And spend <laughs> your whole day, like, just finding a journal article and you can't just control f search you know a keyword or something so we have so much at our fingertips but clearly more information isn't i guess i'm speaking for the the broader public here i think you know these tools have obviously helped researchers immensely but for broader public understanding of so many of these issues yeah there's there's a clear divide there and i I think with covid this was really made apparent right the just yeah how how much i mean we sort of had the solution right like the vaccine came out in record-breaking time it's it's kind of remarkable right it's like almost the silver bullet to the problem but because of you know because of not widespread rapid you know adoption of this it was made worse than it would have otherwise been so yeah i mean disinformation on social media is obviously a clear part of this i mean many people have talked about this like you know the way algorithms work on twitter and facebook they are you know trying to maximally predict attention so what can i get you to click on or maintain your <laughs> your field of vision on the screen yeah. optimally and that's often just things that you know aren't accurate you know it's or or that will spark debate you know so so there's sort of polarized ideas around vaccines and then yeah i think distrust for experts became a big part of that as well especially in the u.s i mean when when i was watching this and i'm sure you probably saw the same thing but yeah many people not knowing who who to trust um is obviously unfortunate as well and I, I sort of think about that with climate change as well. Obviously, with climate change, the landscape has changed a lot, I think. It's, a, I guess, a little sort of before our time, but we, at least when I was doing my PhD, probably the same as you, like there was still more climate change denial it was pretty widespread. I felt even in mainstream media, there were, it was often like presented as these, t- you know, you'd get one, one talking head versus the other talking head and they'd have a debate about science and i think people got confused by that but then i think in recent times unfortunately where the observations have just even played out you know so much so that you can't deny that i mean the data is just so clear now that there's a warming trend and other changes and extreme events that yeah it's just become so clear that there isn't really the debate has shifted i think and it's more there's more widespread agreement still pockets of of this but I think in general the yeah the issues of disinformation and thinking about how we can better communicate our work is is always important. 
I'd be curious to hear your perspective on on what you just said, speaking kind of from where you're sitting in New Zealand. Is it is it a noticeably more attractive environment, I guess, to be doing this kind of work? Are people more receptive? Do you feel like there's more encouragement and more refined understanding among the public? Or is it one of these cases where it's almost all the same as everywhere else, but there's a marginal improvement that gives New Zealand a better reputation, you know, say, than Australia or the US? I think the landscape is a fair bit different here. But having said that, a lot of what happens in the US seems to filter through to, to New Zealand with a sort of five to 10 year delay. Uh, so, we we so export some of our bad yeah. ideas. Eh? Well, I mean, the world's just more connected now, right? So we're, I mean, people see the same things. Everywhere they people, go. Fox News is still accessible. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it is different. I think, yeah, th- th- there's more acceptance in general of nuances and investigative journalism is more keen to pick up on some of these details so when i've done a a bit of science communication only a small amount but i come in with my three you know clear talking points and a journalist will often say oh but what about this and you know you you go down and they actually want to learn more about the science it's not just the headlines which which i really think is useful i think as well i think i think just going back to the trust in experts and how that is so important. I, th- I think science sort of needs <laughs> a better PR campaign globally. And I think this is true for New Zealand and, and the US and, and, and everywhere really, because I think if more people knew what science is, you know, it's, it's science is a method for discovering the truth, right? So I get a little concerned when I hear, you know, political parties saying we're the science party or we support science whereas in fact science is a method you know and i think if if more people understood that that is what scientists do you know we sit down and and really try and discover the truth and and then pull each other apart right so i mean i have two papers in peer review now that it's literally people coming at you from every angle you know even in climate science right where there's there's bits around the edges that we're still doing research on that is unknown yeah, I think I I think framing it that way would be useful. I guess that comes back to as well exposure to science early on. So through schools, right, is your first exposure to science. And I obviously I didn't go to high school or elementary school is what you call it, right? In the US, we call it primary school. Yeah, I mean exposure to science early on done well, I think, is useful. From my own personal experience like my exposure to science in primary school and high school actually turned me away from science more than anything. And it wasn't until university where I chance had some great encounters with great lecturers that completely changed what I thought science was. So my exposure to science in primary school and secondary school was memorizing facts that, you know, had been developed and you're just learning these facts. I think the key thing is that from a young age, most people are pretty interested in science, the core discovery, testing things, seeing what happens, experimentation. I think the process of actually doing science is a lot of fun. And I think if it was presented more like that, I think it could really resonate with more people early on. Whereas my experience was basically just memorize the periodic table of elements, 
you know, these are the mass, these are the number of electrons. I think that just that rote learning for me anyway, was not a good way to really get involved with science, partly because I have a terrible memory, <laughs> but also I think the joy of just discovering something. So I have a toddler, he's two and a half years old. He was actually born just before we moved back. So he's born in the US, he's actually a US citizen. <laughs> So anyway, so I think at the age of two, it's quite fascinating to watch because they're fully just discovering the world and experimenting. It's like figuring out how to pick things up, drop things. What happens if I jump off this this couch? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, I mean, you're sort of experimenting with the physical world for the first time. Anyway, I think being a scientist is quite a natural thing, but somewhere along the way, we somehow managed to make it incredibly boring for most people. I absolutely agree. I did like the memorization aspect of science and history and other subjects, basically because I was good at them, honestly. I mean, I, I had a good memory and I, I like organizing facts into categories and reciting them and stuff. But, you know, with the wisdom of <laughs> early adulthood, of course, I look back and realize my time would have been better spent in more creative ways of learning, not to mention that doesn't work well for a lot of people. And yeah. I've recently yeah. become fascinated in concepts that we, I think, in the Western world, so to speak, take for granted culturally, but actually have a much more recent provenance than we than we assume. When you read about how some of the stuff that we do now was deliberately introduced, you realize how artificial it is. Like, for example, how the emphasis on vote learning more or less came about directly because of the dramatic increase in the numbers of people going to school during and immediately following the Industrial Revolution. And with the large ratios of students to teachers, the traditional kind of tutor-based way of education had to be reinvented. And so as a result, there was this kind of, well, we can just teach them the facts and, you know, then we can just give tests and stuff. And then we don't have to have people explain things and do all these kind of time-consuming experiments and back and forth with the instructor that you have when you're a tutor and you know a lot a lot is lost with that transition of course a lot was gained with a lot more people having access to education but a lot was lost in the quality and intrinsic value of it as well yeah and i mean part of the rote learning part is necessary of course because you need to you know put your experiments in the context of you know the other things but yeah, I, th I think it has to go hand in hand. And I, I do think we could do better. I mean, I'm also speaking from the perspective of someone that went through school a while ago. So I, I think things probably have gotten a lot better, perhaps, where, you know, you do, are more doing more practical experimentation and, and things like that. But yeah, I think, I, I think going back to the idea of learning through discovery, I guess, and maybe even play is a good thing. Like, I think as scientists, we we play a lot. Like, I... <laughs> Like I yeah. take a climate model and I just doing some experiments with, oh, what will happen if I take out Australia, for example? How does Australia, yeah. how does the presence of a big landmass upstream of New Zealand affect our climate and, and things sure. like this? And I think I think that's that's just really fun. Like I run these experiments and I wait and I was like, oh, I can't wait to see the results. And and then you pick them apart and understand it and, and then try to tie that back to our physical understanding. But I mean, I think for me, that's, that's the funnest part of science. It's just, it is sort of a, a play mechanism. And I, I think if people realized that more, more people would get on board with it. I, I, I certainly didn't realize that until university where I did. So my, my first year of university, I was actually 
doing pre-med and through that we we did a physics paper and for me that physics paper was just like a game changer it was like first year physics at university and we did experiments and things that I'd never been exposed to at high school just exactly through this kind of and had just had great tutors in the course and yeah for me that was sort of an eye-opener to oh <laughs> maybe I've maybe maybe science is something I, I am more interested in and I think why this is important, so going back to the bigger question about, you know, misinformation and, and how we can better communicate science and, and trust in experts and these types of things. I think just when you have a bit more exposure to how science works, then I think there is just a lot more trust in, in science. Like my general friends that I have, the ones that have just done even one first year course in science are a bit more receptive to science facts than if you, if you haven't done it done any science because I think I think you're just a bit more aware of the the way science is done yeah and it provides a bulwark also against forces that maybe are that maybe have a a vested interest in people believing one thing or another that may or may not be scientifically supported and I think with the emergence of more and more powerful tools you know in the hands of certain people that and organizations that will be more and more concerning a scientifically literate public will be maybe more important than ever. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think to that point, going back to the landscape in the US versus in New Zealand, I mean, <laughs> I think in in the US, you know, you do have more lobbyists that can actively, I mean, I think this has been shown, you know, in, in parts of the US where there's, there's a big push to, you know, not teach, say, evolution in schools or, or these sorts of things, which which we don't have to sort of battle against yeah. in, in New Zealand. Well, not that I've seen anyway, but. I think just in general, um, exposure to science in its truest form is a good idea. And I, I think as well, going back to the PR issue of science, I mean, I think I, I still think this this was this was part of an issue for me when I thought about becoming a professional scientist. Just the image of what a scientist is or does, or none of it seemed particularly exciting to me. And I think it's completely at odds with what your job actually is. Like I think I'm so lucky to come to work and do what I do. But I think we we could better communicate what a scientist actually does. Yeah, I think that's true. That science is a lot about tinkering. It's about exciting new ideas. It's about combining things in new ways. It's about collaborating with people from around the world who are interested in similar topics and communicating the results to to stakeholders and or the public in different ways. In other words, it's basically a human-centric activity when you boil it down. You know, you, you use numbers and graphs and stuff to communicate that but the heart and soul of it is about sort of what matters to us as people and our relationship with the world and scientific literacy breeds appreciation for that comprehensiveness and complexity and richness yeah and i guess one other aspect to it that i've thought about is you know the communities that perhaps we need to reach out to more Mm -hmm. in science communication that we're not reaching i think I think Kath, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but is it Catherine Hayhoe in the US? Yeah. Yeah, who's a great science communicator, and she's talked a lot about this in terms of framing the science communication challenge in terms of values that people really care about. So creative ways to frame climate change in the context of, for say, a religious community or a mining community or a farming community or or what have you, as opposed to just if if we don't do that, climate change can be, just be seen or the science of climate change can be seen as a mechanism for 
you know, more regulation, more tax, the things that those communities don't like. So I think being more inclusive about reaching out to more communities is absolutely the way you we can do better, yeah. As opposed yeah. to maybe sometimes we preach to the choir too much. It's comforting, but not yeah. really helpful, right? Yeah. And, and I agree that also on an international level, it's the same kind of issue where we have to be careful if we don't include traditionally overlooked communities in this practice of science, then they're rightfully suspicious of science and scientists as, I guess, at best paternalistic, right? Yeah, exactly. You really being, have to show them that the science is a tool for helping them understand and do something with things that they value. For sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I've had a little bit of experience with this recently, actually, in New Zealand. So my my wife's family are from a farming community at the bottom of the South Island. And so whenever I go to a community event, like a town hall or a, a farming community event when I'm staying with, with their family, um, you know, it quickly comes up, what do you do for a, <laughs> what do you do for a job? And then, yep. you know, cl- climate scientists, holy, like that's, yeah. So, kind of worms, but, yeah. <laughs> but I've actually had a lot of fun just chatting to people. And I think also when you just bring it down to their level and, and just being open to having a discussion, I think perhaps, you know, I've had bad experiences where they've said, oh, you know, what about, you know, they have an idea. Well, what about maybe the trend global mean temperature is caused by un- underwater volcanoes? And and hmm. and instead of laughing at them or saying, you know, that's that's ridiculous, is oh, that's that you know, that's an interesting idea. That's actually something we've we've explored. And it turns out, you know, so I think just being respectful and being humble and and realizing we come from a different place, but you know, if you can have a conversation and you can build trust, then I think yeah, you can you can go much further. Yeah, we we ultimately have to respect each other, I think, even if we are suspicious of people's sources of information and their relative accuracy or lack of accuracy. But the fact of the matter is people have different views and we're certainly not experts in things other people are experts in. So we I guess it's only natural for everyone to inquire a little bit about things and try to apply common sense, you know, as they see it. And it's our role, you know, fundamentally, I think, as climate scientists to communicate and be honest about what we know and what we don't know. And that probably works out better in the end than trying to obscure things or, or yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, certainly, certainly better than being condescending or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I guess with newly powerful artificial intelligence and stuff, I don't know what the trend will be like in terms of scientific understanding, but... I suppose we we can only like maybe it shortens the horizon for how long a certain tool will be useful for helping people that we see as far as we can over the horizon. I guess. I think that like the Chat GPT is that what you're referring to? Like. Yeah, that's 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 been prompting a lot of my thoughts lately. But obviously, it's just one example of many. Yeah, I think these are amazing tools. First of all, but I I think in the short term they're not going to help. <laughs> I think, in fact, if anything, they could make the disinformation problem worse in some ways, because they're not always, at the moment, very accurate. <laughs> if, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Not transparent at all, right? When you've trained a large language model on the internet. like. <laughs> but I do think that, have you played with these tools much? Yeah, I've, I've messed around with them a bit. And you see the potential for help and the potential for harm very 
very acutely. Yeah, just our research group here. We the, the other day we were we're writing a it's, it's quite funny actually. We're writing a review article on the use of AI for regional climate downscaling because we're we're doing ah. a bit of work, and we thought it would be fun to get try and get you know ChatGPT which is GPT 3.5, like the slightly older version, but that's publicly available at the moment to sort of write a literature review on this topic for us, right? And when you first look at it at face value, the sentence structure, the grammar, the logic, it's, it's, it's quite impressive, right? It's like, it does it the right way. It like sets it up really impressive. But then when you drill into, for example, the references, which is obviously the main part of a literature review, they're just made up, right? It's bizarre. Like, um, so we like Google Scholar, the the titles of 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 the papers that it's referencing, and they just they sound like they're um, real things, but yeah, they're completely made up. Even the journals, like, it'll be formatted nicely, like APA reference style, but yeah, it's like Journal of Artificial Intelligence for you know hydrology or something. Just. Um, completely doesn't exist it's fascinating <laughs> yeah i've heard about this hallucination issue with scientific literature and it is really head scratching because it doesn't it doesn't seem to be quite so hallucinatory in, in other respects but for some reason it just kind of makes up scientific facts willy-nilly yeah yeah with scientific references especially like yeah on the open ai website they've talked about this yeah that they call it hallucinations which yeah which i kind of <laughs> it's a nice way of saying bs yeah yeah it's a nice Um, but maybe it is a good way because it's interpolating right it's interpolating across it's like this journal could exist this paper could exist but we only we only live in one simulation of the world and in this simulation that paper that paper and that journal do not exist yeah Uh, yeah but in other ways i think it could be useful like some interesting things like if you I don't know if you've played with it for this purpose, but for me, like I, I use a few different languages. Like I switch between Python, Fortran, NCL, depending on the day. <laughs> and so I'm often just going like Stack Overflow, you know, even even really simple things that I've forgotten when I switch between a language, mm-hmm. like the syntax of how to write a function or or a loop or something. So you spend a few minutes like, you know, going through that. But that that is one thing that I've seen really impressive is like using Python, right? A function to do this, and then it's it's pretty good. And then you can add on certain things like like I was writing a plot function, and then you know, as things like increase the font of the y-axis and change the color bar and add a horizontal line. Those are you know those aesthetic things that that when you're first making a plot, you know, they take a while to get right, and it's pretty impressive. I think that it can just do that. On the one hand, these things are always these advances are always scary and i read a you know a comment to the effect of this is in terms of the scariest you know potential for i don't know uh, cannibalizing jobs that this is how a lot of artisans must have felt during the first industrial revolution or something like you know the computers are really coming but at the same time if you you know then you reflect on it a little more soberly and you think well what is really the point of our job as scientists i, I guess it's to understand the world better and to make you know human life a more enjoyable thing through discovery and application of knowledge and is is spending two hours writing some function really you know <laughs> what is the purpose of that right it's just you know i feel kind of good about it but really i should it'd be great if thing could do it for me in two seconds then i can go on to something else that's that it still can't touch uh, in terms of intellectual complexity so so then you yeah. i guess you just have to embrace 
the standing on the shoulders of giants or in this case you know the giant ai yeah I, that's the way i see it as well i mean it's a bit like you know how google as we we're saying before google scholar sort of replaced the need you know to go into journals and, and and waste all that time that no one really enjoyed doing anyway so i think yeah it, i hope it can just speed up the process maybe one day it could i think it's a far way off from you know <laughs> giving it a scientific problem from scratch that you might give to say a phd student and then it being able to make progress on that i think that's obviously a fair way off so maybe yeah. our jobs will be safe for the next decade or so we sort of have a problem in that there's a dichotomy between we're swimming in data and we don't have enough people or expertise to meaningfully analyze it or you know much less communicate and implement the sort of recommendations that it that it leads to in a way this creates more problems rather than solves them and you know like maybe it'll accelerate on the one hand i guess it could help solve problems obviously and give a lot of hints to people about how to analyze things but it also might accelerate the production of knowledge but not the hard human physical world work of you know on the ground you know implementation of adaptation strategies or something like that yeah and i, th I think another like obviously within AI, you know, large language models are just one component of that. And I think also new tools coming to bear just very recently, sort of in the last few years, are slowly beginning to show potential, I think. And I think we're just sort of scratching the surface. So yeah, some of the work we're doing is, because, because with regional downscaling, the biggest problem is, you know, we'd want to run these models at convective resolving scales right at sort of one kilometer resolution but typically just because of computational restraints we're sort of limited like the typical cortex type regional model is like 12 and a half or 25 kilometers still because that means then you can downscale at a reasonable amount of of gcms and another problem with that is we never really sample internal variability so you'd ideally want to you know downscale like 20 initial condition ensemble members from one gcm but as far as I've seen, that that almost never happens in, in regional client modeling. So some of the work we're, we've been doing at NIWA is, yeah, essentially trying to build a regional client model emulator with AI so that we can do our downscaling through AI. And so far, there is some of the results we've had are, are fairly impressive, I think. Still lots of work to do, but sort of the holy grail, I think, would be to run sort of a decade-long convective resolving you know, simulation and then train a vision and AI model to basically try and emulate that regional model and then apply it. So you take that offline and then apply it to downscaling other global climate models. Yeah, I know a few other groups like Elizabeth Barnes's group are yep. kind of approaching that. Exactly, yeah. That goal so, as well, but yeah, it does seem like it's it's not quite there. Yeah, no. But definitely. you're right, that will be really powerful and maybe be a, a real factor and leaping forward in our ability to accurately represent regional extremes and that sort of thing. For sure. What, what I realized is that it's not going to be a good idea to wait for resolution. If you can just do these calculations where, you know, to double the resolution of a, of a model is, you know, eightfold increase in computational cost. And so if you want to say go from 25 kilometers to one kilometer, it's just too large that, you know, we'll wait 40 years for that computational resource perhaps 30 40 years so 
<laughs> and then by then it's kind of like, well, the climate has already done its thing. So what's the point of predicting it? So, so I think, yeah, I think AI is, is the way to do this. Yeah. And so I'm pretty excited to work on that at the moment. There's, there's some interesting technical challenges still. Um, so at the moment, the standard approach is to downscale one variable at a time. So you, you have high resolution projections of precipitation. So if you train a different model to do like temperature, there's no guarantee that those will be physically consistent with each other as they would be in a dynamical model. So yeah, thinking of building into your loss function, multiple predict ands, the things you're trying to predict, yeah, is sort of where we're heading. And, and another interesting thing is like, so if you train on historical reanalysis or observations, you know, in the future, your, your wettest extremes will be much wetter and your hottest heat events will be much hotter than anything you've seen in the past record. So there's a problem with training on, on observations of the past. So yeah, we're experimenting also with ways to get around that by training on model simulations of the future as well. Oh, that'll be interesting to see how that comes out. Yeah. And then the interesting thing is then if you train on the future, how is it, can it generalize to the historical and so yeah, yeah, interesting things to try and get your model to generalize across climates. Yeah, and if models could come up with, this would be another step further even, but if models could come up with metrics that that are somehow defined to maximally you know, differentiate between that model's future climate and its historical climate, there's so many questions about you know, what metric to use. And there's time scales, there's space scales, there's percentiles, there's different variables that interact. And if you ask the question, what makes this model runs, you know, future 2090s decade different than its 2020s decade, if that model could just tell you the difference is maximized at the, you know, the 85th percentile, of the 6 p.m. summer, you know, whatever, like, <laughs> yeah, as one piece of many, but I just think that sort of thing is, you can spend a lot of time screwing around trying to sort of put your finger on what is different about something. Or, yeah. Um, It'd be nice to kind of, I guess, apply machine learning to that question. Yeah. And I think with your physics-based models, like, so I'm running these now on our supercomputer here, and, like, I think there's just a lot of redundant compute usage. So there's only so many different synoptic configurations in the atmosphere that set up, multiplied by humidity, and to result in a certain temperature or rainfall. And we solve mm-hmm. these equations, you know, every grid cell and uh, through time for the whole century at ridiculously small time steps. But maybe you don't need to do it. You know, maybe an AI model can learn from just a few years of simulations that can generalize fairly well because, you know, there are limited degrees of freedom in the in the training data that you need. So, yeah, those are also tests that we're doing. Like if, if we train on, say, two years of a convective resolving simulation how does that generalize versus if you train on 10 years stuff like oh this. wow i have to say i think i'm cheering for the old school models there i'm not completely sure why <laughs> maybe it's because i have meteorological training but I, i'd like to think there's something that ai can't just get from a small sample but who knows maybe maybe i mean i guess it would be good if it could right yeah well well the fascinating thing is that and the, the way we're doing it here is that we, yeah, we're running the physical models as we normally would, and then we're also rolling out these AI-based models because we can only downscale like six global climate models with our traditional approach. But then 
we have the AI approach. So, so we have basically a benchmark to compare against in terms of how the, the climate change signal looks in those, those runs where you have the overlapping models downscaled. So then if they are consistent, then you can hopefully push it out to downscaling a large ensemble from a single GCM or something. Yeah, my main <laughs> role at NEWA is to run physical dynamical climate models. Yeah. And I've just been working with the AI team here. And it's kind of funny because you're like, oh, <laughs> if this does get too good quickly, you know, that, that could displace my job. But I, I think we are a fair way from that. I think, yeah, again, the AI-based downscaling could be really helpful. For example, if we could develop a high-resolution RCM emulator that can generalize well across climates, so the historical climate and the future projections, and generalize well across space. So if we develop an RCM emulator for this particular region of the globe, making sure it can generalize well to other regions would be really useful because then we could directly use that in climate projections in other regions with the main benefit being that these are much, much faster to run. So sort of on the scale of your laptop, as opposed to needing a supercomputer, which is one of the main bottlenecks for, for climate projections in different parts of the world. Yeah, it could really help level the playing field, I suppose, in terms of improving projections for the places that really have the most severe risks or experience the most severe impacts from certain types of extremes. Like what is it, the five consecutive dry seasons they've had on the Horn of Africa, maybe a really good example of humanitarian impact. Exactly, yeah. And I think it could help both on the climate projections, so high resolution climate projections, and also downscaling sub-seasonal to seasonal projections for, for different regions. At NEWA, we sort of roll out our AI-based downscaling seamlessly both across S2S and, and climate projections. So yeah, I think, like you said, for drought in the developing world, that would be a really good application. And it would help with both the climate projection per se, as well as the sort of climate justice economic stuff that contributes to the vulnerability. So going back to what we said a few minutes ago, it's it's a really long ways from models analyzing themselves. Like one is maybe worried about when one reads about the skills of chat GPT combined with you know high resolution models, but there's really a, a large component of human judgment and decision making that that is just so intrinsic to making smart usage of the resources that we have and pushing things forward as much as we can, as fast as we can. Yeah, absolutely. At least in the next few decades anyway. And, you know, just thinking back, I hope I've, I've not said anything too <laughs> disparaging about ChatGPT in case future versions can sort of mine this and find people that have said bad things about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, this won't be censored by ChatGPT. Don't worry. This is, a, this is a humanistic podcast and AI is just a tool for now. Maybe it won't be able to understand my Kiwi accent anyway. So, so maybe, that, <laughs> maybe, maybe, safe, that'll, yeah. maybe that'll let me off the hook. Right. Anyway, thanks, Peter, for talking today. This has really been fascinating to hear your perspective on things, both from your regional context in terms of what's happening in New Zealand and also your previous work in California. But much of what you said was applicable to the whole globe, and it reflects what a lot of us, I think, in this field are feeling and trying to kind of grapple with in technological change, scientific advancement, and all kinds of other things as the decade goes on. Thanks so much, Colin. Um... It was a really fun conversation, and I think it's great what you're doing on the podcast. It's a really valuable contribution. So, yeah, keep it up. Sounds good. See you next time.